Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago. I have a great show for you today. We have a great show, one of my favorites. Uh, we have a great guest in uh, Bob Hoban, and uh, I hope you'll listen, and uh, we're going to learn a lot and uh, have a lot of fun. Uh, today, it's early April. That means, for me at least, it's the beginning of Europe 72. Uh, during these two months, you have to give it a little bit of homage. It's uh, a tremendous, tremendous tour. I think one of their best ever. And uh, we're going to pluck a show from there today that we have not covered in years past. Uh, April 11th, City Hall, Newcastle, England, the, the third show of the uh, tour and one that they kind of threw in at the last minute. And we'll talk more about that. But uh, let's hear our opening track from uh, Grateful Dead, April 11th, 1972. <laughs> song brand new at that time had just come out on ace uh greatest story ever told bobby and donna wailing away uh great high energy thing um and this is the perfect time to turn to our guest today uh bob hoban of clark hill bob is a uh, accomplished lawyer in the marijuana field anybody in marijuana knows who bob is uh he's uh been uh he writes for a number of publications he has his own podcast the hoban minute and uh all fair and full disclosure. I used to work with Bob for a few years and I'm delighted to have an opportunity to talk with him. He's been in our show once before. So here he is, the guy who's as honest as a Denver man can be, Bob Hoban. Bob, welcome to the show. Larry, it's good to be here. Uh, it's a long time coming. I'm, I'm super excited to, to talk uh, talk cannabis and, and dead with you. And, and uh, uh, incidentally, you, you mentioned it briefly, but uh, I do have to say, I think that maybe our time together and the work we all did collectively, not just you and I, but by extension, you know, 50 plus of us at the Hoban Law Group, that may have been the greatest story ever told. <laughs> Nicely done. And, uh, you know, that would be hard to argue, right? In the words of the immortal Steve Shane, the Hoban Law Group wasn't just the best at what they did. They were the only ones who did it. And uh, that certainly rang true for me professionally. Uh, and personally, it was a, a wonderful time and uh, gave me a great introduction into the uh, world of legal cannabis, for which I am forever grateful. So, uh, you know, let, let's I know you're a big Bob Weir fan and uh, that's great because uh, I like Bob, too. But I know you you, you really like him and uh, we're going to get a lot of Bob today. And, you know, here he was kind of flexing his wings, and you know, during the primal dead era, as we like to call it. He, he was part of the whole thing. But this was when they were all starting to write their own tunes and. Bobby had a chance to really get out there and flex. And this was as good a tune as any, you know, off of Ace from that time period. Your thoughts? Well, this this is as good as anything, I agree. But I got to tell you, that black-throated wind on there, wind on there um, and, you know, when they're working that song out, uh, also coming from the Ace album, and you know, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, that's a that's a that's a Barlow Weir combo there on Black Throated Wind. Uh, and I always think about when I'm driving on the highway, uh, passing me by by buses and semis. And you know, there's a certain line in that song when they talk about St. Louis, the city of blue. And and basically, uh, Jerry comes in with a little little tweak, and and over time, that little blues riff got a little bit more pronounced and a little bit louder. Um, but here it was a good it was a good first take yep you know what you're absolutely right and uh it, look these guys are so sharp and this is one of the reasons why it's fun talking with you just like uh, uh my co-host rob hunt when he's in town but you know it, it helps when people have that you know kind of deep inside knowledge and you're right black-throated wind is one 
wonderful. And I probably would have featured it, but we just featured it from another show a couple of weeks ago. And quite frankly, anytime it's in a show, uh, I think it's going to always be one of my favorites from that show. And uh, St. Louis mentioned notwithstanding, but something that we've always appreciated that in, in Big River. So, you know, if you ever see a show in St. Louis, we wait for those two songs to get lined up and then jump all over them. But what I like about this show, Bob, is Europe 72 uh, was a great tour. And one of the reasons why I think it was is because it was so um, last minute, you know, in typical dead fashion. So many things weren't quite planned out. And they wound up in Newcastle because that was the port to take the ferry over to uh, uh, Denmark, where they were going next. And uh, and they were uh, on their way. And they had a night in Newcastle, and they decided they would do a show. And so they got Newcastle City Hall, which the dead described as a dour concrete building in the midst of a grim industrial town on the border of Scotland, had all the warmth of a witch's teat, concrete columns throughout blocking all the sight lines and playing havoc with the, the sound. But it turns out it was a famous venue and a lot of British bands had played there. And in fact, Newcastle had been the home for the guys and the animals, including Eric Burden. Eric Burns' mom went to this dead show just to see if any of the people there knew her son, Eric, and some of them did. And Sting is also from Newcastle. So uh, off they went. But Sam Cutler, the tour manager, uh, said, you know, when the show started, the locals kind of just stood there, dropped jaw to what was going on. Uh, they were stunned and amused. But within a few minutes, the concrete walls somehow turned into green pastures, rays of California sunshine permeated the gloom of the soulless building. And the people from Newcastle relaxed and got into the music. There's nothing like a Grateful Dead concert, and this one was no exception. That's very visual. I can see that happening. I, I can see it in real time, and you can see the people, like you said, with their jaws dropped, seeing this show develop. And, you know, as, as, as fans as we are, as we look at this, this show has a lot of things that are really, really great. First of all, you've got this sort of uh, textbook, Bob Weir, Greatest Story Ever Told, Ace Bobby starting to get out on the stage and doing Bobby songs, right? And, you know, this was the beauty of the Grateful Dead, by the way, which also was indicative in many ways of, of our work together, was everybody got to play lead. Everybody got to be out in front of the band. So when this show was no different, you've got Bobby Rockstar, in a certain respect, developing in the early 70s as a young man, right? You've got, you've got Jerry with Sugar Ree and Deal doing Jerry things, textbook Jerry, and then you got the pig doing pig pen things. And that's an that's an important piece of the puzzle, right? Because the show really starts going after it gets going after playing in the band. And then next time you see me, things start to rip. And then that's where Pigpen starts to get into his groove and get comfortable. And if you read about this tour, Pigpen was not well on this tour. So it was a miracle that he had the energy and, and the enthusiasm. After all, he was ill. He was drinking. There was a lot of things going on. So, so, so this tour, as you point out, was slapped together generally at the last minute. This particular venue was very much at the last minute. And this show's got all the components of a, of a high-level Grateful Dead so, show. And, you know, then, then you're sort of – you move into the second set and, you know, you've got a little bit of trucking, but then you come out with the other one. So you've got some typical Jerry things. I mean, think about the the, the guitar in China Cat uh, down to I Know You Rider with, you know, with. Oh, sure. with, with I mean, th this whole show has got a little bit of everything, which is why it's such a great one. And you can imagine being in that hall, that concrete hall and the reverb coming through there. Um, you wouldn't even have needed to see through those columns uh, to know what was going on. Well, or you would you think you were seeing through the columns, right? If you were if you were sitting next to the right people. Um, if, if you did it right, if you did it right. That's very true. Well, here, let's listen to one more tune really fast because uh, this also is a special time in terms of Jerry and the instruments he was playing. And for a few years uh, in the early 70s, he was fooling around with the pedal steel guitar. And uh, on this tour, just for Looks Like Rain, just for that song, they brought the pedal steel along with him. So, Dan, spin it for us. Let's hear a little Looks Like Rain with Jerry doing it. It's all right. I love you. Come. 
Boy, it surely looks like rain. So obviously what I love about that is the pedal steel, but here's what I want to ask you. You can tell how fresh and new the song is and how young Bobby is. His voice is so powerful when he's singing it, and it's it's a really great mashup with Donna. I can't always say that I'm the biggest Donna fan, but on some of these songs, you know, she really hits her hits the right spot. And and I love that about Bobby. I love that young Bobby voice full of energy. Full, full of energy. And, and, you know, of course, we, we, we all have uh, – we all love Donna, but we all have mixed uh, opinions about different segments of time and her effectiveness. And, you know, this is kind of a funny thing, but it's, it's also an interesting thing. There's a lot of on, – on YouTube, there's isolation of, of Bobby playing rhythm guitar and the, the ingenuity and the creativity and how he really rewrote how to play rhythm guitar. It, when you isolate his, his, his playing uh, is great. Now – I would say the same thing about Donna, but there, cause there's a couple of uh, clips on YouTube where they isolate Donna. And sometimes it sounds like somebody pushed her out of an airplane, but that's, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> well, th- th- you're funny. And, and that's, a, that's a very apt description in some instances. Um, but you know, in uh, speaking with David Gans, when he was a guest on our show, uh, one of the lessons we took away was, uh, you know, what an important part of the band she was, how much beloved she was by everybody in the band and, uh, you know, and all of her great contributions. And that's always good to hear because, you know, you never want to think that they were associating themselves with somebody who wasn't somebody like that. Um, and, and there are definitely playing in the band. I love her on playing in the band, especially on the reprise with Bobby and, you know, and really get into that. And there, there's a lot of other great stuff. And, uh, you know, Europe 72, she was, she was also relatively new to the band at that point and, uh, you know, just kind of finding herself and, uh, you know, stepped right up and, and, and made a name for herself there too, I think. No, she, she, she definitely did. And I mean, look, there, there's, there's so many great Donna things. Uh, and, you know, just the dynamic with the band, too. It really did change the perception. I mean, you know, this this band, the Warlocks, didn't become the Grateful Dead by accident, but they also didn't become the Grateful Dead by design. Right. This was a comp. They kept adding people. I mean, the notion of two drummers and the story behind bringing the two drummers in the, the story of bringing Donna in, you know, and the need for the keyboardist at the time and how all that worked out. All of those things had shaped the history of this band and its evolution. And I, I, I mean, there are periods of time where, uh, you know, I, I wish Donna would refrain from, from, from belting away, but uh, most of the time, far more than not, I, I love it. Um, but you know, it, it's without that dynamic, certainly for large periods of time, uh, the band would not have progressed the way that they did, uh, which is, which is great. And by the way, there's also some beautiful singing by her. If you go to one of the, the Shakedown Street studio album, you know, when you look at, you know, uh, a, a couple, a couple of those instrumental tunes with her in the background and, uh, you know, uh, what, what the heck's the, uh, France, France, the, France. Uh, yeah. yeah. And from the heart of me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. She's got a couple out there that, you know, she got to sing from time to time. Absolutely. And, and that's all good. And I love your description of them as, you know, kind of no, it, it wasn't a plan that everybody looked down the road for. It was a plan that evolved over time when the right people came along, they picked up the people and they ran with it. And, you know, again, as long as we're throwing these apt descriptions back and forth, you, you can also take credit for that, Bob, which I think, you know, makes us all wonder whether, you know, you sat down and wrote your business plan after listening to a bunch of Grateful Dead. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it certainly might have been the case. Um, I, I don't want to go away from this, though, without really circling back for a minute to Garcia and that pedal steel. Uh, he started playing it a lot with the New Riders. In fact, that was one of the reasons why he and Marmaduke formed the New Riders, is they loved playing together so much with Jerry on the pedal steel. Uh, but it, it only made a very brief uh, presence with uh, the Grateful Dead as a touring band. And uh, primarily it was saved for Looks Like Rain. On, on the Garcia album, he plays it on To Lay Me Down and The Wheel and Spider God, which is one of those songs that you never really know, but they played in the Grateful Dead movie at the beginning. And so, you know, it kind of took on a cult status of his own. But where Jerry really got a lot of uh, uh, notice for playing the pedal steel was on the teacher, uh, teacher Children on the Deja Vu album for Crosby, Stills and Nash he plays pedal steel on that song. And it, it, you know, we all know it. If you hear, if you can sing the song in your head for a minute and if not go home and play it and right away, you can't help but notice Jerry and his pedal steel. And the thing is at the time it was relatively new for him. He had only just started playing it. Not that long before he self-taught, he never took a lesson and he, he really nailed it. But what I really like about it, Bob, is that uh, they didn't pay him. The deal he made was he would play pedal steel for them on this tune 
and uh, they would teach the Grateful Dead how to harmonize, uh, which they were then able to utilize on Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. And, you know, in those albums, the Dead really do have some great vocal harmonizing. And, of course, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were the masters of it. Well, that's what I was going to mention. I mean, you know, Jerry integrated that beginning in about 69, I think, till about 74. You know, it was a mainstay. But also, you know, he recorded, to your point, with Crosby, with Stills, with Nash, separately, typically, uh, on, on, on albums. He was their, their sort of studio guitarist on the pedal steel and, 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 and several of those. He was on a few Jefferson Airplane songs as well. So, uh, so you know, and, and I guess Starship uh, when, when they, they turned around. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, this this is only as much as Jerry Garcia was this living legend and and the centerpiece of the Grateful Dead for so long. He was something to so many other people in so many different ways as well outside of the Grateful Dead. And those are the things that in and of itself would have been an amazing career, let alone what he did with the dead. But, uh, you know, obviously we missed the guy. But to your point earlier, I'm a huge Bobby fan. I've always thought that, you know, Bobby was, uh, you know, maybe maligned or sort of treated differently. And I believe in many ways there were periods of time where Jerry's drug use was harder than others. And Bobby sort of kept the band together, uh, kept the band together in a sense that, you know, rock star Bobby. Some people like to say that's cheesy, but rock star Bobby, in my opinion, saved the dead on multiple occasions. And we still love that stuff when we hear it even to this day. Uh, although maybe with the one exception, if, if you haven't done this recently, do yourself a favor and watch uh, – Watch uh, the the videos from the 1980s off of the uh, the 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 album uh, with Touch of Grey and uh, oh gosh what the heck uh, 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 anyway I, it'll it'll come back to me but but right. uh, the the video from uh, damn Larry I can't remember the damn song it it's a, it's got a duck in it it's uh, it's a ridiculous Bob Weir video oh. from the 1980s indicative of what was going on at, at the time but yeah that was um. Was that going to hell in a bucket? Hell in a bucket. The, hell in a bucket, exactly. And, and he's was, in the bar with those guys, yes, and they're all looking yes. mean and nasty. And yes. So, so, so Bobby brought some of this on himself uh, with the short shorts and everything else. But in many ways, I think Bobby really was the you know the, the centerpiece of the band, center to Jerry, but also through periods of time got us through. And you know, this is this is early Bobby stuff. Uh, you know, I listen to Ace as a regular matter. I listen to Rat Dog albums as a regular matter. Most people don't even know who Rat Dog is, but if you don't, pick up Evening Moods or Live at Roseland and you're uh, you're in for a treat. No, you know what? You're absolutely right. There's so many great things. And I was just reading a story the other day with, where, where somebody was commenting on uh, uh, how Bobby's skills as a rhythm guitar player often got overlooked just because how strong Garcia plays. And, you know, just to divert for one second, uh, this past Saturday night, I had an opportunity to go see Tedeschi Trucks at one of their nights when they do their annual residency here in Chicago at the Chicago Theater. Um, you know, it, it's always great fun. And it's always the same thing where we sit there and we say, Susan Tedeschi, man, she's beautiful. She has an amazing voice. She plays guitar like any rock legend out there but she's standing next to Derek trucks and everybody's watching him all night. You know, it, it's hard when you're, you know, when, when you're standing next to a guy who's kind of not only just talented, but revered for that talent. And, uh, but you know, Bobby, he, I, I always thought that he was the, you know, he was the guy that, 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 that reached out to the world. You know, I, I don't think anybody ever like looked at Jerry Garcia and said, well, I'm going to follow the grateful dead, but I'm sure a lot of people looked at Bobby and thought, wow, you know, look at this guy. He's young. He's energetic. He looks like a rock star. And, and I think he filled a lot of roles for them in that regard. And, uh, you know, he, he should get his props for playing guitar. You and I were lucky enough to see him in Chicago last year when he came through with Wolf Brothers. And that was a tremendous show. Tremendous show. And, and, and I have to tell you, I, you know, I, I saw Bobby down in, uh, saw we, uh, Dead & Co down in uh, Mexico at the early, earlier this year. And Bobby, oh, sure. Bobby's healthy. I don't know if you see his Instagram videos. He's a, oh, yeah. he's a, he's a workout <laughs> model these days, but he, his voice is healthy. It's strong, maybe with a little help from, uh, from, you know, technology, but he sounds great. The band sounds great. And for this final tour, I'm pretty excited uh, as well. But, you know, just just another note, though, you think about Bobby, you think about Jerry. But this show, remember, this was a blues rock and roll blues band. This was Pigpen's band. Pigpen was the strong headed personality that brought this group together. Pigpen drove this. And again, these are sort of the waning days of, of Pigpen as his health deteriorated and his his you know alcohol consumption increased, so forth and so on. But at the end of the day, 
when you when you listen to that good loving and his riff where he's talking to the crowd and he's talking about you know just you know hugging your neighbor and being a it like that is the kind of stuff that the band not intentionally moved away from because Bobby brought some of that back into the mix but when Pigpen was gone we kind of lost that connection that kind of connection to the audience in a major way but going back to Dead Co that is why I love the addition of John Mayer he's controversial not everybody likes John Mayer but John Mayer has blues roots and it's he plays blues, guitar he's great he play, and those blues roots was where the band started and it ultimately deviated away from that uh in many ways so it's still kept in it and then it came back to it with with dead and company uh over the years so i don't know lots of uh lots of exciting stuff incidentally john mayer was here in denver a couple of nights ago i was unaware i only saw it after the fact but he apparently played a couple of dead tunes and you know while most of that show might have been a little poppy for me um i i do regret not going because I, I do admire the guy and and just to see how he channels what he channels on stage at the beginning i thought that was cheesy it sort of grew grew to to love it but uh you know, Bobby's Bobby's still the anchor of that band. Bobby's the anchor of that band. You know what? And give John Mayer credit. I mean, I think this makes Dead and Co. far and away the longest running group of of uh, Grateful Dead members uh, since the original band. Right? This is longer than when they played as the Dead or the other ones, or you know, any of the further any of the other names that they they've played under. And you know, that cements uh, John Mayer as the second longest you know lead guitar player. Uh, for the band. And, you know, he, he, he took the time and the effort to really make it work out so much so that um, with the uh, help of Jay Blakesburg and others, they were able to set him up to play Wolf guitar at, at the, at City Field where the Mets play a few years ago when, when the, the, the guitar was in New York at the museum, uh, the modern art, or the museum of modern art, whichever museum it was at when, when they were showing the, the guitars of uh, famous rock and roll people. And, you know, deservedly so. He, he is a great, great talent. And, you know, it, it kind of begs the question now. I mean, uh, it's hard to believe that uh, all of these, Bob Weir certainly doesn't look like he's slowing down anytime soon. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the drummers are going to do, but, you know, it just leads to now we can start rampantly speculating about what the next group is going to be. You know, who, who are they going to pull together next? And, you know, there's always a few guys in the group like Jeff Comenti, who you figure are always going to be there. But uh, I'll be very curious to see what Bobby does. And, you know, what I, one thing I like is it seems that both Bobby and Phil have taken a real liking uh, to the band Goose and especially yeah. their lead guitar player, Mick. Mitterotondo, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and if I'm not, I apologize. Uh, we're going to see them in a couple of weeks, and I'm excited to have a chance to do that. Um, but you know, I love that. You know, the, the the jam band scene is 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 reloading right away with somebody new, and you know, if Bobby and Phil, you know, are willing to play with guys like that, I think it's a great thing. Yeah, no, I, Goose was uh, Goose was uh, at at playing in the sand down in Mexico, so we saw them one night, and and just fantastic, uh, great band played uh, a lot of their own stuff they played some covers that just made you made you cry and you know at, at the end of it um i don't know i i think that you know there's no heir apparent it's like saying who's the next michael jordan there's never another michael jordan not kobe bryant not anybody michael jordan was michael jordan thank you but at the same time thank you, you know who's the band that sort of takes that following and takes that mantle uh we'll see We'll see, because uh, you know I don't know if you've noticed. I look in the mirror every morning. None of us are getting any younger. So no, no, that, that, that's that's very true. Um, you know, as my kids will always point out gladly, and you know, without even trying too hard. Um, well, this is fun, and you know, folks, here's the thing. Um, Bob and I could fill an hour talking about Grateful Dead without even trying. Um, as you can hear, it just bounces back and forth, and I would love to keep doing it. However. Uh, we have to respect the fact that uh, there are not a lot of people uh, in the United States today, legal or otherwise, who have uh, the experience, the the knowledge, the background, the overall, not just a feel for the industry, but the respect that the industry shows back to him. And uh, we are more than remiss. We're negligent if we don't take a little bit of time uh, to talk with Bob about what's going on in the industry um, and I know, Bob, that uh, we're going to get to hemp in one minute, and I know you've been doing a lot with that. Um, but I just want to very quickly uh, just kind of tap into uh, your overall thoughts of where you think the legal cannabis market is right now. You know, one of the things that Rob and I had been noticing uh, in weeks past was the large number of businesses, mostly in Canada, but some in the United States that we're laying off huge numbers of workers and we're, you know, really fighting to stay above ground and, you know, prices are plummeting and, and people in California, the Garcia brand ab abandoned California. And where do you see the legal cannabis market now and where do you see it going in the next year or two? 
Well, first of all, you know, here's the thing with legal cannabis. Um, everybody talks about, oh, I, you know, there's there, there's a lot of circumspection and decision making on behalf of consumers about what brands and what products they buy. And I hate to say it, Larry, the data suggests the exact opposite. Consumers will buy the lowest price thing as long as it's consistent, right? And lowest price wraps in the taxes too. So it becomes a little bit of a conundrum. But look, early 2020, recession proof. Um, everybody was using cannabis more than they had uh, and and even more so that the regular users were using it, you know, because the, everybody was home. We were locked down. Work was from home. So numbers went up dramatically. But the problem with the numbers going up dramatically in terms of consumption and use was that production was also being invested in quite he heavily at that point in time. It was either underway or it was ramped up to meet that demand. Well, then everybody went back to work and that demand while the demand continues similarly, the amount of purchase numbers from each particular buyer has gone down. So you're looking at the fact that uh, there's more production and there's a demand that is somewhat steady, but because of the production demand lapse or imbalance, if you will, um, the industry is in dire straits. Interestingly enough, this is an industry that is always looking for a capital raise. At no point is there a company that sits back and says, well, we're good enough with our revenues and our expansion and we're going to sit back and ride this. It says every week, every month, every year is fo focusing on a capital raise. And that equity dollars have dried up dramatically. So you're looking at, in North America, you're looking at uh, debt, you take on lending and there's a lot of money in lending, but it comes at quite a price. And we don't even see a lot of those loans uh, being flexible and have convertible clauses, meaning that they'd convert it to equity or, or cancel some of the debt if the company's performing well or otherwise. So, so that's created a bit of a challenge, but there are some sweet spots. There's still equity investment in, for example, the acquisition of consulting firms and fintech solutions, because those are the gateway to the industry as it becomes more balanced. Uh, there's still an interest in North America in emerging or new markets like New York, like New Jersey, like Missouri. Uh, California is sort of coming back in terms of price stabilization. But where the action is at is the global supply chain. And of course, that does not touch the United States. You have the European Union. Germany is weeks, if not a couple of months away from finalizing their legislative scheme. Countries in Western Europe will follow German's lead, Germany's lead one after the other after the other. That will create an increased demand. It just begs the question of, as to whether dispensaries with high regulations and high taxes is really where this belongs. At the end of the day, I think that was a nice way to come out of the box from a policy perspective. It gave you know parents, it gave your average person, your, your soccer mom, so to speak, and policymakers, it gave them comfort that this industry was going to not just run wild and, and create a, a scourge on society. But now that we've proven that, we have to reevaluate what is really a 10-year-old overtaxed, overregulated dispensary model. And you know, I think some of the things that go towards that are loosening it up. I think cookie has cookies has innovative approaches to how they have a cookies corner. I think that you saw Circle K come out of the box recently and put out a press release. I don't believe there's any action there, but a press release that says we're going to put cannabis uh, sales in our stores. The, the model has to change and reflect the fact that um, this is not quite mainstream, but it's accepted by more people now in the United States and beyond than ever. And it's normalized and regulation works. It's just the taxes are too high and the strict regulation, not that it needs to be less strict, but some of these things are, are inapplicable uh, and unnecessary, frankly, and that's killing these businesses. So we have to look at a broader model. And, you know, that's kind of why we've always talked about. I look at hemp. I look at marijuana and, and I say marijuana because that's a legal term. And I think as, as lawyers, we're sort of bound by that because uh, sure. the cannabis industry has both sides. And then I think there's a third very distinct industry there, and that's the cannabinoid industry, because that could be synthetic. It could be natural. But cannabinoids are not necessarily easily jam jammable into either one of those two boxes. So anyway, things are positive. There's still growth. It's just not that exponential growth we've seen for the last 13, 14, 15 years. 
Okay, well, I appreciate that. And you mentioned something, and I'm and I'm curious about this. I know a year or two ago you integrated the Hoban Law Group into Clark Hill, and as an as a result, uh, you know, you Clark Hill is obviously a very large and well known firm uh, with a lot of very big corporate clients. And you know, without obviously, we don't need to know any names or anything like that. But being in that firm, what is your sense as to corporate America's view? on legalized marijuana? Are they generally for it? Are they against it? Are they just going to take a step back and wait and see what happens? Uh, I think the one word that comes to mind is uninformed. Um, I can tell you my experience in in joining uh, Clark Hill um, that other lawyers in the firm that have large clients, whether they're grocery stores, C stores, healthcare systems, oil and gas companies, Larry, you'd be surprised at where these, these they, they, they want to know what is the industry all about? They want to know about are there investment opportunities, whether that's for themselves or for the company. And they want to know about how their particular field or industry plugs in. And it's something you and I have talked about for a very long time is the cannabis plant is not just smokable. It's not just consumable. It's, you know, when you look at all these uses of the cannabis plant, um, industries will be using hemp or forms of cannabis all industries will within the next 15 to 25 years. There's not a question in my mind. We have to uh, because it's the only sustainable crop out there that really is is a dry land crop. It doesn't require as much water as these other crops. But my point is I've talked to countless large-scale Fortune 500 companies about what those questions mean to them. And they're still sitting on the sidelines because they had no idea that the industry was as big as it is. But they're also large scale, oftentimes multinational, oftentimes public companies. And so even this sales, even though on that scale, these, these numbers are large, they're still small numbers to these very large international corporate interests. So right. they're not going to force something that might be federally illegal if that is federally illegal on the marijuana side, of course, when you're talking about the U.S., not going to force it for a marginal increase in dollars on one side or the other. Um, but they are actively participating, uh, and they're they're behind the scenes, you know, pushing for for policy change. But they're waiting for that, uh, based on my experience. Now, that's not to say these consumer product manufacturers are not sort of doing one-off brands, testing the market with a CBD product, maybe even with a Delta Nine hemp product. But at the end of the day. They're not necessarily putting those out under the broad uh, banners that we've seen for, for other consumer goods. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, one other quick question I want to ask you in the, uh, in the marijuana world is this. As you know, and we've, we've talked about forever, I'm based here in Illinois, and Illinois has not been the poster child for how you want to roll out a marijuana program. Um, you know, we're, we're three years into the program and maybe one, maybe one of the new dispensary license uh, people is finally up and operating, uh, maybe two out of 150 or so. Uh, everything was tied up for three years. Uh, there were so many problems. I contrast that with my home state, Missouri. Missouri, in 87 days, 87 days after the legislation was passed in the Missouri legislature, they were up and running with 200 dispensaries and blowing by Illinois in numbers because they had far more operating dispensaries. And, you know, it seems like such a disparity to me, you know, in terms of the way one state operates versus the way the other state operates. You know, Oklahoma, they obviously went with nothing at all. Basically, anyone could sign up and, and start operating. But, you know, from your perspective, where do you see, you know, is an appropriate kind of like middle ground in terms of what level of involvement a state should have, knowing on the one hand, it's necessary to maintain a workable market. But on the other hand, boy, if we look at Illinois, it's just kicked the hell out of everything as far as this industry is concerned. Well, listen, I, I defer to your experience in the Illinois market. I've worked in that market. I, I know it somewhat well. But the history of Illinois politics, Chicago politics, that colors my thinking. And, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't say that that has something to do with how this rolled out. In other words, you know, at least by perception, Everyone in that ch chain from local governments on to the top, they've got their hand out in some some way. And I don't necessarily mean that in a nefarious way all the time. Sometimes that just means they want to assert additional control within their jurisdiction. But sometimes it does mean they have their hand out in, in that, you know, sort of underhanded kind of way. But my point is, I think that that sort of mucked up the rollout of the program, whereas you have other programs that are just crystal clear and it's not it's not built in so that every stakeholder or interest holder can assert themselves so the Missouri program was quite simple right state approval 
local government approval on various things like land use, zoning, you know, basic things that local governments can control. And they ultimately have the ability to jive with the state on that. So it's a very simple process. Um, but when everyone wants to, and, and seemingly, seemingly, I don't know Missouri politics at all, except to say seemingly uh, the people whose hands were out or that wanted to assert additional control, they kind of stood back a little bit, maybe because it's a little bit more of a conservative jurisdiction and they wanted to see how this was going to go versus a more progressive jurisdiction like Illinois, where people were, all right, this is going to happen. Let's take part in it and participate and drive it versus in Missouri, it might have been, well, let's wait and see how this goes. This might not go so well. We don't want to be involved. Um, so, so that I think colors it a little bit too. But as we've evolved, we, saw, we see what regulatory frameworks work and which ones don't. And there's two or three or four very key sections of a regulatory framework that will dictate whether or not it's going to have more trouble or not. Um, some of that has to do with taxation. Some of that has to do with outside investment. Some of that has to do with who and what needs to be disclosed in terms of you know ownership and control. Uh, and some of that has to do with you know, zoning and, and whether there's license caps on that. If you address those four or five issues, you can take a program that has a lot of difficulty like Illinois and make it a program that rolls out at least smoothly like a Missouri or dare I say my home state of New Jersey. So far, so good. The uh, the conditional licenses on the social equity program are rolling out seemingly, seemingly quite efficiently. Well, I'm glad that somebody got it right because I think it's a wonderful concept, but it was just wrong here from the very beginning. And it being Illinois, nobody was really interested in talking about it and let it play out like it always does. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing the end results of it. But I, I just I couldn't have been more impressed with Missouri. You know, um, as a resident from Missouri, I can't always say 100 percent that I'm proud to say that I'm from the state, except when we talk about the Cardinals, of course. But in this instance, uh, far and away, uh, Missouri really kicked ass and my hat's off to him and uh, um, all my friends that I know down there who have participated have had nothing but good things to say about it. So good for them. Um, before we flip over to the hemp side, I don't want to lose track totally of our Grateful Dead discussion today. So let's dive back into the show for a minute. Um, in a second here, I'm going to have Dan spin our next clip. It's trucking. And I, I, I picked this version of it because in 1972, trucking again was, was practically brand new, just having come out on American Beauty. Um, it, it is a it is a primarily a Bob tune, even though they all participated in writing it, except Pigpen, who apparently went upstairs to take a nap and missed out on it. Um, but, you know, when they play it, it, it sounds good. It's got uh, great energy. Um, it, you know, it, it becomes a standard for them that, you know, you can never go more than three or four shows to see the Grateful Dead without hearing it. But the real reason why I picked this version is because in this version, I think the jamming alone stands out. So we're going to play a clip here. No version, just the jam because it's that hot. I hear that and you know I just chalked that up to their remaining energy from their primal dead days being channeled into you know a more Americana style of music and it, it just it, it takes that song and it pushes it along in a way that's just so wonderful to hear well it, it does but you know you're the Americana comes through in the lyrics too right when you, you know oh, yeah. when, when you think about you know we're talking about Dallas we're talking about Houston we're talking about New York uh, you know just this this whole thing being on the road, it, it, it's it's very much an extension, by the way, of sort of the Kerouac on the road notion, right? Yes, uh, and, yes. And, and that's that's a that's a combination that I love that is not talked about enough when you think about the Grateful Dead and their and, and its evolution. Being here in Denver, where, where Kerouac spent so much time 
physically, but also in terms of just writing and writing about it. Uh, and, and incidentally, in our new office, we have a speakeasy room that we've named the Kerouac Room, uh, which is kind of cool. But at, at, sure. at, at the end of the day, uh, watching the NCAA tournament fairly recently, and Bill Walton pulled out an old favorite when he was asked about the University of Houston. He did say Houston was too close to New Orleans, but I've also heard him say it probably a dozen times. So, <laughs> uh, he's, he's he's funny. Um, you're absolutely right about that connection, and, and by my way of thinking, at least, uh, what what finally brought it all together for me was the electric Kool Aid acid test by Tom Wolfe, where he he talks about so you know focused on the acid test, of course, but the the pivotal role that the Grateful Dead played in that whole thing, and as a result, the the benefit that it gave the Grateful Dead and in, in really coming out and being recognized, if you will, as America's psychedelic band, and uh, you know kind of gave them that mantle that they could run with for a long, long time, even as they eventually did change over their musical style. But, you know, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's fun to hear. Um, it's great stuff. And uh, uh, again, at a time, you know, Europe 72, when they were really at the top of their game, you know, it, one of the things about a tour like Europe 72 that I like, and we've talked about in the past, is that because there were so many shows in such an isolated period of time and that a large part of their set list rolled over pretty quickly, they were playing monster shows, you know, two and a half, three hour shows, sometimes even longer. Um, so certain songs like playing in the band, the first time you hear it, it sounds one way. By the time you get to the end of the tour, you hear it, it sounds another way. You know, they've been taking these tunes, they've been working them out. Uh, they've been doing great things with it. And, you know, I, I think that this tour is where trucking really kind of stepped to the forefront for both Bobby and the band as a real banner tune that, you know, they could play and anybody is going to stand up and dance to that one. Yes, a hundred percent. And, you know, with this tour also, you know, had a, had a lot of great stuff, but, you know, underlooked as a Grateful Dead, uh, you know, in the repertoire, but even in this show, Mr. Charlie, Larry, Mr. Charlie gets the crowd going. I have no idea why it was not a more prominently played tune. When you get that song going, it just it's a feel-good song. It gets everybody moving, and, and I don't think there was enough. I'd, I'd say the same thing about the wheel uh, separately uh, as well. We didn't hear enough wheel over the last you know 40 or 50 years, I suppose. But uh, one of the songs from this tour, not on this concert, but he's gone. The he's gone from the 1972 show. show uh, also because the story behind it was was so timely with Mickey's father running off with her money. But uh, but because but, so it was heartfelt. And, you know, at the end of the day, I remember when Jerry died and I put lyrics up on a chalkboard in my house uh, visiting my mom at home, you know, uh, uh, like a, a locomotive rolling down the tracks. He's gone, never come back. So and, you know, at that point in time, I was and I was a young man at the time or young, a lot, a lot younger. I didn't know that the song was about Mickey's father. I thought he's gone, man. Somebody was gone, this and that, because it resonated to me at that point in time. Pigpen. We all thought Pigpen. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. But no. But but, but great, great he's gone through that through that entire tour. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, here, um, another one, and, and we're, we're really rolling in the Bobby today. Um, I want to roll into the other one really fast because this is also amazing. Now, at this time in 72, these other ones were enormous. In fact, this one from the show clocks in at almost 26 minutes. Um, and there's so much jamming in there where the focus is really on the music, not quite as much on the lyrics. And you don't get, you know, that cutesy stuff like in the later years where when Bobby was singing the lyrics, they were running it through a voice scrambler to make it sound all kind of weird and everything. Um, but in this, uh, from this part, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not so much interested in the lyrics. Uh, but I want you to listen to this jam. Uh, they're call, they call it the feeling groovy jam. And uh, it, in my opinion, I think that that really becomes the highlight of the song.
now the the fish kids these days call that a stage two jam, right? And, and when I finally got someone to define for me what a stage two jam is, is when the jam goes so long and so good, you forget what song they're playing. And of course, you know, we all had stage two jams. We just didn't call it that. But it, it's that kind of jam, right? Where you're listening to it. There's no lyrics. There's just music. And the music is almost telling a story the way it's just kind of meandering about. And, you know, if you really stop and let yourself get into it, you can forget what day of the week it is as far as I'm concerned. hundred percent. You know, when, when I, when I travel and, and people ask me about music and I talk about the Grateful Dead, you know, believe it or not, there are large populations in this world who have never heard of the band, wouldn't know a thing. So you have to describe what the Grateful Dead is. And it's a, it's a rock and roll. Right. Larry, how the, how do you describe what the Grateful Dead is? You know, when you think about that song and then that whole suite of music and you think about, for example, Terrapin Station and that whole suite of music and then the Weather Report suite, what the hell is that stuff? No one's ever done anything like that before. That's Is that rock and roll? Is it, to your point, telling a story with, with you know, a long jam, which it definitely is. But you know, who, who does this? What, where did this stuff come from? It's not trucking. It's not... Even, you know, the Bobby tunes, it's not even the spacey stuff. It's, it's, it's a long diatribe of a, of a jam that comes from all parts of the band and is moving for, to your point, 15, 20, 25 minutes. And you don't even know where you are until they come back to a riff or a, or a lyric that, that brings you back home. And that's the beauty of it. But how could you possibly describe those kind of songs and what that means to somebody that's never heard of the band? Um, but that is what defines the band in many ways. Well, no, you're right. And, and, I've, and I've told all my friends over the years when they say to me, what makes it so great? You got to come see them live. We'll play a tape. No tape. You have to be see them live. You have to be there in the moment. The music has to be around you. You have to be in and around the people. You have to feel the energy that the band creates or conversely that the crowd creates and passes back up to the band. And, and, and when you're in those moments and you're there and they, and they just kind of branch off and do this for a little while, you have no idea where they're going. You have no idea what they're doing. Uh, you wonder if they have any idea. Um, and, 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 you know, one of the things I've noticed over the years as well is it, while they're doing it, I, again, I, I noticed like with, with when Fish plays on the jams, it will Trey tease this and Trey tease that and Trey teased everything. And I guess you could hear a little bit of that with Jerry from time to time, but I, but I just always thought that, that the band were borrowing and incorporating sounds from so many different musical sources to which they had all been exposed uh, over time and, and integrating that into what they did. A few weeks ago, we were listening to a show with a, uh, a drum a drum segment where they had Hamza al-Din, who had played with them on their Egyptian shows back. And and, and that stuff is just fascinating because it, it's new. It, it's something that we're not otherwise exposed to, but yet somehow they played in a way that makes it feel right at home at a Grateful Dead show. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, and, and they do to this very day. And, you know, again, the, the drummers, the drummers lead that those things in many ways in terms of where they where they're going to go with it. Uh, and to this very day, they do. But, uh, you know, I don't know. We could we could talk all day long about it. But but at the end and, and, and when we, we have and we will. But at the end of the day, you know, look, this is a band beyond description. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, no, you're absolutely right. When you, when you get to that level and you try you know, to really figure it all out and, and you realize you can't figure it all out and, and all you have to do is just keep exposing yourself to it. And uh, uh, given that, uh, uh, at least on the day we're recording this, a big Jewish holiday is starting tonight, I've got friends who are very religious and they go in and, 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 and they do uh, study all the time. They study what's called the Mishnah and other books uh, of Judaism. And, and it's so dense and so deep. And, they, and the way they explain it to me sounds very much like us listening to Grateful Dead music, that you could listen to it forever. And every time you're picking up something new, a different nuance, you hear something a different way or some, some particular line that you've had in your head forever, you hear it in another show. And you're like, oh my God, this, you know, and, and you can make those connections and out of those connections, you can extrapolate whatever you want. And, uh, and to me, that's what makes it so great and why, why we love talking about it. But I'm not going to pass up this opportunity uh, while I have you on this show uh, to talk about the other side of cannabis. We were just talking about marijuana, but I really want to switch over to the hemp side. Um, and, and we can certainly talk about the, uh, the commercial uses of hemp, but 
I want to focus on Delta 8 for a minute because Delta 8 is like this thing that's out there. Everybody talks about it. Everybody thinks they know about it. People, does it get me high? Does it not get me high? Is it legal? Is it not legal? You know, my clients call up, can we sell it? Can we not sell it? And then in the midst of all of this, you know, we get the DEA once again, kind of sticking their nose in where it doesn't belong and telling us that, well, uh, we can enforce uh, uh, Delta 8 and we can put it on the controlled substance list because it's synthetically manufactured. And so therefore, uh, we don't believe that that means that it's one of the uh, naturally derived cannabinoids that the farm bill speaks to. What the hell's going on with Delta 8, Bob? That's a great, that's a great question. So, so let, let's take that from the top as best we can. Did the, the framers, did Congress intend that these things like Delta 8, Delta 10, Delta 11, HHC, did the did Congress intend these to be legal? As lawyers, how do you determine intent, Larry? You look at the plain language. They could not have picked broader language, Larry. They say all derivatives, all salts, all extracts, all compounds, all isomers. Sure sounds to me that anything that comes out of the hemp plant, whether applied to some sort of process or not, is a legal compound. Doesn't mean it's regulated. That's a whole nother argument. What's legal versus what regu- what's regulated? Lawyers don't make that distinction enough because that's really prescient here. But at the end of the day, you know, Farm Bill would suggest with very broad language that all of these compounds are legal. It also begs the question because Delta 9 from hemp is no longer a controlled substance by the plain language. Right. Why are we pussyfooting around with Delta 8, Delta, Delta 10, and everything else if Delta 9 is the thing and it's legal? But that's another story for another day because there are limitations there. Yes. The Ninth Circuit Court in California has conclusively established in a in part of its holding, not not dicta, not just a comment in the in the in the ruling. It said that Delta 8 and these types of extracts comfortably fit within the definition of the farm bill. So federal law would suggest that these are legal compounds very clearly. Will Congress address it this year? I don't think they will. I think they're leaving it to the states. The states are actively considering this. And you might read the press. The press seems to be a little biased against this one way or another. I'm simply reporting what I see. Um, you know, 60% of our clients are marijuana clients. And, you know, the other 40% are a mix of hemp and, and what I call cannabinoid clients. So we're very much in, in touch with both sides of this industry. But at the end of the day, the states are not looking to ban this stuff. They're looking to regulate it. And, and you know, I'll throw another concept, Larry. Maybe, just maybe, Delta 8, Delta 10 is red state weed, right? These are popping up in Tennessee, in Florida, in Ar- or Alabama, in Arkansas, in Texas, in these conservative states that don't have marijuana dispensaries necessarily, or at least widespread commercial distribution, because maybe it's a limited medical model. Kentucky, of all places, adopted both a Delta 8 regulatory structure and a medical marijuana structure within the last several days. So there, so there are big movements to regulate this. Larry, four years ago, I thought this stuff was going away. Two years ago, I was still thinking it was on, I'm on the, on the fence about whether it goes away way. I did not judge it or take a position of it one way or the other. It's here to stay, Larry. It's not going anywhere. It's huge business all over the world. The dollars from just Colorado, um, Virginia, and, um, and Florida's markets alone are in the billions with a B, billions and billions of dollars, tens of thousands of jobs, hundreds of millions of in- dollars of infrastructure. Governors are not going to sh- send this stuff to the woodpile. They're just not because that's sending industry out of their state. They might look at how to ban sales of retail in their state, but they'll allow for export. Or they might regulate the products and put age gates in place, which are appropriate. But this stuff is here to stay, and I think we have to stop being judgmental. You see the marijuana industry fighting against the sale of these products in dispensaries. Larry, how does that make any sense? If you're a store owner, it's your job to sell as many things as possible. That's what your investors, your board, your company deserves and requires. So why are you saying I don't want to sell products that people are buying to the tune of billions of dollars in a dispensary? Because the dispensary system is just going to distribute marijuana in the future? Come on. We see an overtaxed and overregulated model. Dispensaries can pivot and be leveraged to distribute a number of intoxicating compounds, but the marijuana industry at times doesn't see further than their nose. And that's not a knock. It's a protectionist thing. I get that. 
I get that. But it's the same thing with CBD. The early players didn't try to shut CBD down. What did they do, Larry? They created a nimble structure and they participated on both sides while preserving their marijuana licensure in state X, Y, and Z and preserving their ability to sell it over the counter or online everywhere. This is not a philosophical debate if it's business. It could be a philosophical debate between us, whether this should be allowed or not, whether semi-synthetics should be allowed or not. The safety data would indicate that these things are safe if done properly, if regulated properly. There's still a lot of producers making it in their garage and bathtubs, and that stuff should not make it to the market, the, 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 the marketplace, but it does. But it's here to stay, and, and, and I think people need to get their minds around it and realize that the dispensary system model is now 10 years old, Larry. 10 years old is old. It's old in terms of public policy. And that doesn't mean the system should go away, but it needs it needs to diversify, particularly in its worst economic moment. And yet for protectionist reasons that don't stand to reason at all, they're not allowing or even inviting the sales of these types of products in their their their, their stores. And these would generate revenues for the business and revenues for the state. So I don't get it. Uh, I think everyone's sort of holier than now, but you know, that doesn't surprise me because this industry was formed by a bunch of idealist and ambitious people that wanted to push that. Uh, we're part of that and proud to be part of it and proud to stand by side by side with all these people. But I think that, you know, sometimes philosophy has to yield to marketplace reality and consumer demand. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, out of all of that, the thing that I take away from it, and you and I have had this discussion before, you know, as we kind of look to sum up the world in more of a 50-50 type of way, we're, we're sitting here with something that that defies partisanship, right? People in blue states like to smoke it. People in red states like to smoke it. Uh, I've seen last week we were talking about the governor of Delaware, a Democrat who killed a marijuana bill. And then you read about other states where the Republican governors, Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas, was helping to push it through. And, and you know, when I see that, you know, you, to me, that's a true an indicator as anything um, when politicians are willing to really do the way they feel about it. And, and you know, while I wish that the governor of uh, Delaware wasn't trying to kill the bills, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that the people in that state will eventually find a way to get their bills passed. And uh, to me, I think that, you know, when we live in a country like this, you know, and especially uh, now we have uh, Trump has been indicted and it, it'll be what it'll be. But, you know, these things, whether they're necessary or not, they, they, they drive wedges between us. And marijuana doesn't drive a wedge between us. I've never, I, I could be talking to a person from a red state all day long. And if we disagree on politics, we will certainly agree the minute we pull a joint out and start smoking it. And the, the conversation shifts to where was the weed from? And have you ever tried this brand? Have you ever tried that strain? And, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, um, which which frustrates me that we still can't get the fair uh, safe banking act through the Senate because McConnell and uh, Schumer each refused to give the other guy credit, you know, for, for for letting it go through. So I guess that's politics in a different way. But you know, come on, people, this is here to stay. You know, we, we don't have uh, these 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 uh, raging partisanship issues over other things. We don't have to have it over this. And for the most part, we're not. Let's get these bills passed. Let's let people have bank accounts. Let's let you know, dispensaries not have to mess around with 280E and actually be able to see if they can really earn a living, you know, in a traditional way. There's no reason not to. What, 70% of the people in this country approve of legalized marijuana? Uh, that's a huge, that, uh, that's not 50-50 anymore. We've ventured into, people are really, really behind this. The rest of the world is behind this. This is happening all over the world, regardless of what the USA says. And and that's an important yep. thing to, to uncover. There is a global supply chain that exists right now. And it doesn't matter what's happening in the US. Yes, the US is the holy grail, grail of consumer consumption and, and behaviors, right? Uh, and, and that's what everybody wants to access. But other countries... Other continents are moving forward this and on this and mass, and because of that, we can't just sit here and, and judge it, and we can't in a state like Delaware or Maryland or wherever it is, you know, look at this little fiefdom and say, oh, this is not good for us. Look at what the rest of the world's doing. Look what the studies show. By the way, you talk about sort of getting on the same page. The Delta Eight law passed unanimously in the Kentucky legislature. 
Larry, unanimously, go back and look. If anything's ever passed, any, I, I'm sure it has, but but very seldom anything passes unanimously in Kentucky. This was an R&D-sponsored measure on the most controversial topic there is, and it passed unanimously. So the, the point is that the, the, the things are changing, and it almost doesn't matter what happens in the U.S. because the rest of the world is evolving beyond us. And if safe banking and or the Climact does get passed, those international operators will make our companies and our multi-state operators look foolish and amateur because they'll have been used to operating by international standards. They'll have been used to shipping things across oceans and across continents and around the world and ultimately being able to participate in a regulated marketplace that's that's accepted and recognized and free. Um, and by the way, these countries have gone to the United Nations and sort of engaged in the United Nations with a dialogue. And you saw what the United Nations said to the U.S. a couple of weeks ago. You have to shut down your dispensaries in the different states. They didn't say to Germany, hey, Germany, don't move forward with your program. So it's about engaging in the dialogue and recognizing that if the U.S. wants to put its fingerprints on how this should roll out globally, it needs to do so now or it's going to get left behind in terms of what the regulatory framework looks like. It will always have its influence from economics and consumers, but it will not have its ability to shape the the public policy around it and that public policy change. Instead, it continues to ignore it because we're caught up in this 50-50 partisan battle on every single issue, where if you say I'm in favor of something, my job, my reason for existence is to say the opposite of what you said. And that's what's terrible about this country. And that's because it's 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 it, it's not unusual in politics, but it's really divisive and it creates just this deadlock and it turns people away and it makes people revert to their echo chambers, their echo chambers where they're listening to the same thing over and over again, instead of trying, trying to at least hear what the other side has to say. Uh, those days seem to be over. I think you're right. And look, all we can do is, is, you know, go about and do our jobs the best we can, try to send the right message as we move forward. Hope that somebody uh, who makes a difference in terms of government policy will listen to us honestly and, and truthfully engage in solutions uh, to the things that they have concerns about and, and ultimately be willing to normalize through a, a, a truthful and positive message instead of our just say no scare tactics that, uh, you know, while on the one hand, uh, um, you know, nobody wants school children to start using drugs. On the other hand, uh, sometimes things like that get taken just a little too far. At any rate, Bob, um, on all of this, we could continue to talk and, and we're going to have to do it again. Uh, but my uh, producer here, Dan, is giving me these you know terrible cut signals that if we don't go stop soon, uh, you know, it's going to be a long night of editing for him. And nobody wants that for Dan Humiston. So um, uh, on the way out here, we're, we're going to we're going to play an outro uh, for our fans, and it's going to be uh, a clip from Broke Down Palace, uh, always one of my favorite tunes, uh, another gem from American Beauty, so another new one at the time. Uh, so because it's relatively new, you hear them really, again, playing with the same energy we've heard uh, throughout the show. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, it was never the bad news about a Grateful Dead show, but inevitably they all ended. Inevitably, the show ended. You had to find your coat. You had to find your shoes. You had to go back out there and either go to job, your, your job or go back to school or to do whatever. And, you know, so the idea of, uh, oh, the encore took on great significance because this is it. What are you going to do? And some encores were good. Some others weren't. I never heard anybody complain about Broke Down Palace. And I never heard anybody, never saw anybody come out of a show after Broke Down Palace who didn't have a big grin on their face. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and you know, in, in the interest of time, I, I'm going to just ask you one question on this topic. When you have an encore, do you like an encore that is a, uh, you know, we bid you good night, uh, Broke Down Palace, a ripple, something that makes you walk out with a huge smile on your face, but mellow? Or do you like to come out, you know, with the you know, the not fade away ending or the, the one more Saturday night, just come out on a high note where, yes, there's not enough music, there's never enough music, but do you want to come out, shout out of a cannon, or do you want to shut out, come out with that big smile on your face like, you know what, I just had a wonderful meal, it's time to go take a nap. <laughs> uh, you know what, unfortunately, it, it would take me the length of another episode for us to really hash that one out to a to any kind of a reasonable uh, conclusion, right? You just go with the show, baby, whatever the debt are ready to give me, I'm ready to take, and uh, 
But, you know, uh, you know, to that point when you get broke down and they could pick it up a little bit, but it was just a nice, sweet tune. And, you know, it, it would send you out into the night and, and you just be ready to go. So, Bob, again, thank you so much for the time. I know you're a busy guy. You're traveling all over the place. And uh, personally, it's always great to get to talk to you. And, you know, from the perspective of the show, it's wonderful to have a guy like you on who checks all of our boxes uh, intelligently, you know, with, with a lot of knowledge. And uh, and uh, it, it, it's a lot of fun. Thank you for being here. No, it's my pleasure, Larry. I'll see you in Wrigley Field, Wrigley Field this summer. I will look forward to it, Bob. Thank you very much. Uh, to all of our listeners, thank you again for listening. Please join us next week. Uh, have a great week in between and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Broke Down Palace. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down. down.